Revenge of the 80s Kids has been rated P for podcast. Gentlemen, we have a problem. Have you ever read Ezekiel 25.17? The path of the films of 1994 is beset on all sides by the inadequacies of Blank Man and the headache that is natural-born killers. Blessed is he who, in the name of Hukul Matata, shepherds Forrest Gump through the Stargate at a constant speed of 55 miles per hour, for he is truly Frankenstein's monster and finder of child actor Natalie Portman. And I will strike down upon thee with Street Fighter and Furious Time Cop, those who would attempt to phaser and disintegrate Captain Kirk. And you will know our name is the 80s kids when I lay our revenge upon thee. Well, there we go. The impact is, is, I would say double, but that wasn't this year. Jean-Claude Van Damme had too much to do this year to be in double impact, so we'll we'll leave that aside. Too much to do. Some of it good, some of it not so good. Uh, but uh, yes, you join uh, me and my friend uh, here, Ian L. Jackson, and uh, my other friend, Justin Travolta. And I guess that means I'm the guy in the chair who gets shot, and I'm the But who cares about that? So, Ian, how is that burger? It's a damn tasty burger. Yeah, so there we go. But you know what? Um, 1994 is, you know, it's not really remembered as a, as a, as a very prominent comic book year, really, is it, Leo? It's, it's not remembered as a prominent comic book year because I think that people, I think people have really sort of only sort of said what's coming up in the superhero Marvel comic book landscape since uh, X-Men, which isn't coming up for another seven years at this point. So uh, this was the era before X-Men, in which comic books were Uh, something dirty. I remember those dark times when if you were remotely interested in seeing any of your beloved characters on screen, it was a rather uh, hit-or-miss affair on, on whether it would even be anything like the character at all. Well, even comic books themselves were having something of an awkward adolescence in the 90s, were they not? I don't know. I wasn't really reading comics in the 90s. so No, there's a reason for that. And the reason for that is, I mean, I guess anyone could do a Google image search. For... They call it Iron Age, don't they? Is that, is that the right term for the 90s when it all got a bit dark and people had blades and... Yes, that's right. It was. You know, the, it's it was judge <clears throat> started getting very serious. That's were, that. Once again, the 90s, the shadow of 90s extremeness. Yeah. Hung uh, like a, a pall, a dark cloud over the nineties in comics, and every character got sort of uh, new uniforms which had little bits of armor with spiky bits on them, and uh, spent all their time standing on rocks in front of like 
lightning with with their new uh, darker costumes growling describing it as an awkward adolescence is is definitely the case i'm not sure quite how that works out because you know 70s and 80s are really the time when towards the end of the silver age you had the silver age then you had a rerun several times during the 70s and 80s and comics were definitely kids stuff and then in the 90s I suppose some people had come up with comics. I mean, I suppose it's our generation, really, to the point where we were all in that sort of angsty era, and and the comic market. Well, I think it's the post eighties, post eighties milieu. You know, it's all it's all about swearing and being a bit more gritty, and that's what makes it serious, as opposed to the childishly flying around having fun adventures. Consequences. Yeah, I mean, it's not like. It's not like good stuff didn't happen at all. It's just that it was somewhat eclipsed by the large amount of people doing stupid stuff. I mean, I saw a Daredevil costume from the 90s and, whoo boy. I mean, that's the thing. Characters who'd always been very simple and clean, I think it's also the advent of being able to do a bit more computery stuff. They started to go a bit mad with it. Because, obviously, the reason that Daredevil is a guy in a leotard who's mostly red is because it makes him easy to draw and colour. But then the minute that you're like, well, I could do layers, and I could put all this stuff. They have everybody suddenly had like stripes and and right. and square bits and blades and God knows what. So yeah, the mainstream of comics. I mean, the other thing that we're, that we're notorious for, which is more towards the latter end, is that obviously as as comic book collectors became older, they had more disposable income, and they didn't any of them want to read any of the comics that were coming out in the mid nineties because they were all well mostly horrible so they all went to collect old comics and of course comics are supposed to be disposable so some of those old comics were very expensive and people started with their disposable income dropping ridiculous amounts of money on flimsy bits of paper in in plastic bags and the comic industry noted that you know people were going for looking for you know amazing fantasy number whatever to get their spider-man or whatever it was and going to these conventions and trying to get these rare issues in which uh, benchmark events happen and that's the start of uh, an era which has run nearly to the present where comics try to arrange events so that people will go out in their droves and buy these event issues without sort of realising or kind of thinking about the fact that if there's an event, it really has to stand out from everything else that's happening. So if every comic is doing an event all at the same time, they're just comics. So nobody wants them. And they way over-published, like, thousands of titles. Because people are like, well, this is stupid. These aren't proper events. They're just going, wow, look at this. Something special's happening. Which is what they did before. But now they're trying to make it, oh, special edition, foil-wrapped cover, and all this kind of stuff. So, yeah, comics were in the dark times for quite a while here. And uh, some people would argue that they never really left those dark times to this day. But, you know, other people would argue otherwise. I mean, it's possible that, like everything else, all the stuff that distinguishes itself and is special, you can only see it after the dust has settled, that in the the flurry of what's going on today, you can't spot the titles that are really going to have some longevity and put some good stories in them. So you really have to wait for it all to be in the past before you can curate what was worth reading. And looking at 1994 and and considering this in the past, I mean, most of the films that were coin book adaptations, they they weren't very well-known coin books. They're almost certainly more well-known as films, um, I would say. Could we list them, perhaps? 
Yeah, uh, so we have uh, The Crow, of course, is one of the things. Now, that's an interesting one because people actually knew that was a comic book. But it's all right. It was a comic book with loads of gothy stuff in it, and it was inspired by the death of, of, of Ian Curtis. So it wasn't like a real comic book. It was like a comic book that, you know, normal people could read. And you also had The Mask came out. Now, now again, people did know that, but, of course, it was marketed as a bit of a kid's movie. So what they didn't know was that they totally gutted the, the sort of the spirit of the comic book to make the film. Only the comic book fans knew that. And, of course, nobody listens to them because they're geeks. And then we had Time Cop, which uh, I think to this day people don't really know is a comic book adaptation. Then, and this isn't a comic book adaptation, and, in fact, we shall have special words to say about this later, a film called Blank Man, made by the Wayans, the Elder Wayans, came out this year, which was a superhero. I don't know what you would call it, but we'll talk about that in a bit. Um, and not on the list of films that were actually released, but certainly something that people were kind of expecting and then didn't get was uh, Fantastic Four, produced by Roger Corman. Uh, didn't come out in 1994, but was made in 1994, and then ruthlessly shelved by a studio that wanted to keep hold of the rights to make a Fantastic Four movie at some time in the future from uh, Marvel. And aren't and we all jolly they glad they did retain them, aren't we? Yes, they all worked out quite well. Yes, I mean, yeah, where would we be today without the uh, peerless Fantastic Four adaptations that have come after? Again, we shall discuss this briefly uh, coming up. Yeah, they definitely kept quiet about Time Cop being a, a, a comic book. Yeah, I didn't know that was an adaption. It, it, it is indeed. And again, it's one where they basically took the idea of, you know, a Time Cop and then went and made a Jean-Claude Van Damme movie, which pays a sort of nod in the diet. I mean, that's the it's, it's one of the better well-known Van Damme movies, though, isn't it? Yes, uh, people... Well, the, the, the point is that Van Damme should have known he was on the skids. When, when Time Cop came out, people went, this is actually all right, you know. It's like, if that's how people yeah. react to your body of work, that when you put out <laughs> something that isn't eye-wincingly cheesetastic and only enjoyable in an ironic sense, people go, oh... Well, that was a surprise. Then well, you know he's no, a bad project. He, he is an action star. He works in the action genre. And here he is trying to do something a bit more mainstream. I, th I think that's what the angle was. I guess. I mean, it is a, I mean it's a sci-fi action martial arts. I mean, the good thing is that he didn't ruin it all and become a, a stalwart of uh, quality B-movie sci-fi action schlock. Because in the same year, he managed to make Street Fighter. So that was much more <laughs> on his level. So, and that's an adaptation, obviously, a uh, video game adaptation. It was hot on the heels of Super Mario Brothers, being another expensive failure, dearie me. But we'll come back to that particular failure uh, in a little while. Uh, let us consider for a moment uh, The Crow, which I guess is, I mean, I've, I've actually never read The Crow graphic novel. No, no, I haven't read it. Which is weird. It's sold a bomb since i mean the fact that they're trying to reboot it with the same story that was in the original one leads me to suppose that they did a fairly good job of ad adapting the book really um, we, we can only speculate unfortunately um yes. and of course the film is famously known for accidentally shooting brandon lee uh yes that was a pull that that hangs over the movie to the present day i think i mean what's weird about it is um, I, I personally am a big fan of most of the Crow franchise to date. 
with the exception of that Edward Furlong abomination. That was, you know, even the third one, Salvation, which starred no one and, you know, well, Fred Ward, but, you know, starred no one, had nothing really going for it. It was just the fact that, you know, for some reason, I like that story. And the fact that they keep doing it over and over again with a slightly different villain and, you know, a different person being the dead person who's come back to life. And it's the ingredients, you know, shot like a goth rock video, has a bunch of rock on the soundtrack, has some guy, you know, in this sort of crow outfit going around murdering scumbag, uh, unusual freak show scumbags. And it's great. It's, yeah. you know, I love it. Um, and then that's why the fourth one is so bad, because it, it completely goes, oh, we're going to junk the rock music. But I like the rock music. You listen to the soundtrack long after the film has faded from memory. Crow Salvation has one of the best Crow soundtracks. So they've completely screwed the pooch on that one. You love the gritty urbanness. You like all the lighting. It's it's just, it's not, it, I think what they don't realise is, that because film isn't like this often, is that it's not a film where the sequel needs to develop. It's a pantomime. It's like a ritual, the crow ritual. You, you just watch the same thing happen over again. And some of them are, are more quality than others. So, yeah, I'm not, yeah I, I, I really like that. So... And I think, weirdly, the complete disrespect shown to the memory of Brandon Lee by just going, oh, we'll make a second one with a different actor and completely change everything about. And then we'll make a third one that goes direct to video. Weirdly, that kind of takes the edge off the first one because the studio don't care. They've got the rights to the Crow name, so they're just going to keep pumping them out. It's very strange that, you know, well, not really. I suppose people are motivated by money. But, yeah, it's just the, it's just the complete lack of... Any kind of, is this a bit insensitive? Just casting Vincent Cassell, hiring Tim Pope and Iggy Pop and all these people and just making another movie that's exactly the same as the first one, but this time nobody actually dies on set. I mean, Alex Proyas was really upset about it, understandably. So, yeah. Well, it, must have quite a, it must have lowered morale on set, I would have thought. Killing, oh, it totally, killing yeah, a lead. I mean, the Crow was a fairly small movie. I mean, it was okay, but look, we've got Brandon Lee... We got Ernie Hudson. We got uh, what's it, Michael Wincott. After that, I mean, you know, we don't have any big name stars in this movie. Brandon Lee was uh, seen as an up and comer, as it as it was. So this was kind of meant to be his sort of his breakout role in Hollywood, and so he was meant to be what you know. This is sort of Brandon Lee's equivalent of the Terminator for Arnie. That's how people were placing this picture, and so it wasn't meant to be you know massive. So it didn't have the, the world's hugest budget. And yet, yeah, and, and so it kind of received a reputation after the fact. Yeah, it's still an awesome movie. So you know, well, do you all, think do you think Brandon Lee's death played in with a certain degree of publicity about the film, a sort of, sort of ghoulishness about it? Certainly, it did, but probably not one that anyone involved with making it really wanted to sort of. No, not, no, no. I mean, in a way, they did that as tasteful as they could. Nobody really played it up, but yes, of course, people were going to see it because that dude died while he was making it. Taking a, a lateral skip uh, away from that uh, into The Mask, which, like Time Cop, uh, took the basic premise of its original material and then turned it into a vehicle for Jim Carrey. Apparently, the original Mask comic book is is a tad darker 
than... Uh, that's what I hear. I haven't read it, but that's what I hear, yes. Yeah, I, um, I've never been a Jim Carrey fan. At least not a Jim Carrey fan when he when he's in his overacting phase. There's a lot of it in there. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I think... Well, actually, no, I mean, he's... he's Oh, he has, he has calmed down an awful lot, and he's become a lot better as an actor, and I can tolerate him now. But this phase, the Ace Ventura phase, the Mask phase, the Liar Liar phase, it seems to be a a a problem with with you know comedians from that route who go through that route through Saturday Night Live, going to stuff. They kind of make a name for themselves playing short in sketch comedy, playing wacky characters, and <laughs> and therefore that's fine for a five minute sketch, but it can be a bit irritating. When these larger than life characters, you have to watch a whole film full of a character. You know. This yeah. Well, what I would what I would say is that I mean, I, yeah, I still don't have much time for either of the Ace Ventura movies, but because Jim Carrey did, you know, The Truman Show and The Majestic yeah. and Eternal Sunshine and uh, I Love You, Philip Morris, and you know, the, you know, and 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 and. Uh, because he's had that whole strand to his career where you can see him as an actor. I have come back to, I can now watch Liar Liar perfectly happily because there's a difference between watching someone whose only trick is to be a complete maniac and watching someone who's doing that consciously, you can therefore ascribe to him a little bit more conscious decision because he's consciously decided to do something else. But he has has so many films back-to-back that are of that form, though. That's what kind of drained me of him for a while. Oh, no, Liar 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 was after The Truman Show, wasn't it? Uh, Yeah, probably. Yeah. Um, The the Truman Show is the first one I started. As we've seen countless times... A lot of comedians are able to play tragedy and serious stuff as well. It's just that, you know, it's the easy buck is to, is to play that kind of jokey role that they're m- most known for. But I think, well, I, mean, I think what's really interesting is because I'm pretty sure that I, I never went to see either of the Ace Venturas. I, I didn't even, even though when I saw clips of the mask, I was like, oh, I can't stand that guy. But I said, if I was going to go and see it, I probably could stand it because they've just, given him something to do which is what he does rather dismissively so i was willing to see it, but i didn't but i perfectly i went i'm pretty sure i went to see liar liar at the cinema this is one of the things that makes me sad about will ferrell he has made to date precisely one movie exactly. he has the capacity yes to it, to, in which he has done a really nice dramatic turn really beautifully played Oh, yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, letting other people do the extremity, uh, only really, you know, really deft, uh, which is a film called Stranger Than Fiction, which we which should get around to eventually. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And in that moment, you know, you can watch as much Anchorman and as much whatever as you want, and you just go, well, this guy, he's talented. But then the problem is, it comes out, you know, you get Talladega Nights, and then you get, you know, like Step Brothers, and then you get, and he just laid, and he's gone, well, this makes money, so I'm going to do this. And what he's not realising, I think, is that, weirdly, someone like Jim Carrey becomes much more of a box office draw because, well, not not much more, but he certainly gets a better class of person going to see, a better sort of, someone who wants to think more about the movie will go and see something crazy that he's done, possibly, precisely because they're like, well, yeah, give him some credit, he's actually talented. Yeah. And that's and you know although I know that about Will Ferrell although I know Will Ferrell is talented and that he can put in a dramatic turn as well because it's been years since Stranger Than Fiction and he hasn't gone back into that arena you know he, he gets old again you're like mm, I'm, not, I'm not really that didn't certainly didn't go and see Anchorman two but um and, you, and then sometimes you just look and you think this is sad 
he made this really good movie once and he might but you know he might have a bit of a, a Bill Murray kind of phase where he disappears when all that stuff just people are sick of and then comes back and does something astounding when he's older could well be and and so finally I mean we're going to talk about the Fantastic Four I will essay forth on the Fantastic Four movie in a moment but just to show how low the image of the comic book reader had come at this dark time, I watched Blank Man. Some people refer to the Big Bang Theory as a sort of geek black and white minstrel show. That the the characters in the Big Bang Theory are geek blackface, which I, I think that's, that's overegging the insult slightly. I don't think you can equate you know nerd stereotypes with racism. I mean, no, I mean, I don't necessarily agree anyway. I just, I don't really see that that's even applicable. But certainly people have, you know, nerd blackface that they, they, you know, turning the nerds into the laughing stock of society. But yeah, people on the internet like to whine. And certainly if they'd watched Blank Man, then they'd know what nerd blackface actually looked like. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. I think, I think we're, you know. Have you seen Blank Man, Justin? I, I have, yes. Oh dear. I, you know, I was bored one day. I've got Netflix, and it was on. I was like, "Yeah, that that that's that's an hour and a half. I'm not getting back." I um, haven't even really heard of this movie. All films about nerds were like this up, up, up until recently. Right. Justin, explain for Ian what goes on in Blank Man, so that we can get the full horror. Or you know, I'll I'll add a little more afterwards. But... Relive it because it... <laughs> oh right, okay. So you've actually had therapy to to get away That's from the, the memory. Yeah. Okay. So uh, yeah, in Blank is... Man, Damon Wayans hit upon this great idea that what he was going to do was make fun of all those people who liked comic books and sad stuff that nobody was ever going to be into in his lifetime. Uh, uh, he was just going to completely uh, expose the the stinking heart of the geek by making this film in which he is uh, an idiot who believes he is a genius inventor. Now, what's weird is in the film, people keep saying he's really bright. He's a genius, but they've decided he's decided that the way to portray this guy's mechanical genius is, is to make him like sort of um, a cross between Pee Wee Herman and Rain Man. And then there's this kind of whole strand to it where it's like kick-ass before kick-ass. He's just some sad, mentally unstable weirdo who puts, like, a terry-toweling headband with eye holes cut on and wears a tablecloth and invents things that look like they were invented by that kid out of the Goonies. And he runs around... Oh, There is this weird thing where he invents this liquid, and if you soak cloth in it... It, it is still cloth, but it's bulletproof and you can't and stab proof and presumably arrow proof and everything else. And then instead of making a cowl that goes over his whole head, which would make sense, he just wears a terry toweling headband. Just, yes. <laughs> and then stuff happens and he's not particularly heroic. And then they do this thing. Where, and it's obviously one of these things where there was a meeting where they said, maybe we want to go a bit more realistic with this. So they gave his character who has a brother who looks after him. He did karate lessons. So there's the one point where the brother like does some karate and you're like, okay, so what's this all about? Oh, just the whole thing. It's not only a mess, but it is highly insulting. It is insulting. Because then they've got the the love interest played by Robin Givens 
in one of her last screen appearances, and this is probably why. And then we're supposed to buy that this, you know, sophisticated news anchor woman falls completely in love with the guy with the tablecloth on his back and stuff. Because why? And it's and, it, and the reason is because this is the point where it really jumps the shark and everything else, is that Damon Wayans believes this is what comic book people believe. That's what they think. They think if they put a tablecloth on their back, then attractive women will want to sleep with them. That's what he thinks they believe, which they don't. No. And that's where it, that's where it really takes that. It's really insulting. You've completely misunderstood why people read comic books there. So, yeah, that is the one... It's not the juvenile, it's a bully in the playground going, ha-ha, let's laugh at the geeky people. Um, it's, you know, it, it it's, it's please don't watch it. <laughs> yeah, and yet, and yet underneath it all, there's this weird thing. Well, it's, I mean, I think there's an element of self-hate in here because it plays rather heavily on the old 60s Batman television series. And I get the feeling that Damon Wayans really likes that. Yeah. And so he thinks that, you know, a comic book store is just filled with high camp sitcom-esque comic book stuff. And so, you know, he's just like multiplying it to times a million. But what's really interesting about it is he really likes Batman the television series and not in an ironic way. You could say he's a bit of a geek for it. Yes. Like he's like the opposite of Tim Burton. And he thinks that all superheroes are wrapped in this layer of camp. Presumably, uh, he's altered his opinions in the in the intervening twenty years. It's actually yeah. quite a depart. It's quite quite different, really, from from uh, Big, Big Bang Theory because you might people might accuse Big Bang, like you say, of kind of making fun of geeks. But actually, those characters are likable to a certain extent. They are not the butt of jokes, and there are other people that are clearly more cooler than them. They are the stars of the show, and they represent facets of geekdom. You know, that you can laugh at, recognise yourself, exaggerated, but you're still going to want to care about them. Whereas, you know, this kind of stuff just is pandering to that stuff that we got plenty of, you know, in in the 80s and 90s of just, uh, you know, geek, geek yeah. bashing, as it were. Uh, and I'm glad things changed, really. So, yeah. So, um, and just as a sort of ironic cherry topper to this weird comic cake, is this uh, Fantastic Four adaptation, which is notorious in in uh, comic book circles. Yeah. Basically, the studio that had the rights to the Fantastic Four uh, had a deal with Marvel much similar to the ones that all the other studios have right now, which is that if they haven't made a movie within a certain number of years, the rights revert back to Marvel. So they decided to make a Fantastic Four movie because they thought maybe at some point in the future we'll want to make a Fantastic Four movie that we actually care about. But we don't care about it now. So to keep the rights, we're going to make this movie and then we're just going to shelve it. I mean, they could. They, I'm sure that people would have been quite happy to get paid to turn up to technically make a movie that was never going to see the light of day. And what a god-awful movie that movie would have been. But for some reason, the executive producers, the studio people, decided that they were going to conceal the fact that they totally intended to bury this movie from the director and the cast. The only person involved who really knew that it was destined never to see a cinema screen or even a video store was the producer Roger Corman. And Roger Corman's a well-known cynic, so he would never have... He'd just, yeah, whatever, I'll get paid to make a movie that's never going to get seen. 
crazy. I suppose they had to give it a budget and they had to make the movie because, you know, otherwise they would have ended up in court on the end of a contract suit. Like, you didn't really make a movie. If they'd sent someone out with $50 and a camcorder, you know, they had to do the whole thing. They had to make a legal entity which could be counted as a movie. And they did it and they shelved it and they thought, well, it'll never see the light of day. The only problem is, I think, that because the cast and crew were under the impression that it was a real movie, and, you know, how do we think that work prints get out onto the internet anyway? It's because some disgruntled staff member decide, well, you know, I'm going to put this out because I... And I think... And this is basically created the mother of all grudges, which probably is why I found it quite so easy to locate on the internet. Easy. Not legal, but easy. Well, I also um, think because the, the, the story behind this film was just so infamous as well that when you actually go to watch it and it's oh it's all right actually it's a very low budget uh superhero film it it, it kind of surprises you the sincerity yes, of it have you have you seen it ian I've, yes a long while ago you have yes yes yeah i mean that's what i mean were you surprised by because what surprised me most was that it's it's not bad no and What's it would, it would have been a commercial more... failure, I'm sure of it, but it's it's not it's not it would have been a, a director sure. video I, I, thing, even if it's heyday, I think. But I think if it had been director video, it would have been a director video smash. I'm not sure it could have stood on its legs in a cinema because people just weren't in the right mindset. But if you put it straight out to video, it, it I think it would absolutely have done gangbusters business because it was big enough for video it was big enough to be a video exclusive and well enough made i mean you know this is the the only thing that i would truly say was really obvious that they weren't taking it seriously is that they didn't get a good score because people know that a good score covers up a multitude of budget sins and because they guessed they were going to shelve it they just put this score together and it's a terrible score it really is the the epitome of a, a Muzak score. There's nothing epic or stirring particularly about the score. But having said that, that means that if they had put a proper score on it, people would probably think it was a lot better movie than it actually is. I mean, this exposes some of its weak points. But as an origin story for the Fantastic Four, the adaptations to this origin are small and forgivable. Reed Richards actually is buyable as Reed Richards. Uh, Susan Storm actually looks like Susan Storm. Doctor Doom looks hella like Doctor Doom. And in fact, because they went for this tone of Silver Age camp, where they kind of played up that sort of angle of it, it works as an adaptation of the Fantastic Four at a particular time in their history. What's really noodle baking is that then when they made the, the later ones and now they're going to re reboot it again they've completely missed the point every time when they've had more money and they've actually intended to release it to bring people in somehow i mean i think probably they benefited from not having studio interference because hell what did the studio care <laughs> there's no notes from the producers i'm really enjoying making this film Yes, exactly, exactly. The thing is, you get this kind of reputation. He's like, oh, it looks so cheap. Like, they say it in that tone of voice. Whereas I would say, well, you have to accept the fact that it was cheap. But they stretched that little budget that they had and got absolutely the best out of it that they could. In a way, it's exactly the reverse of Blank Man. It's actually quite respectful to the Fantastic Four and says, look, we're not going to push it. We're just going to try and do what we can do. 
I mean, what did you think of the thing, Ian, in this movie? Well, you know, it's a guy in a suit. That's all you can really do. And it, it was fine, I thought. They... I thought it was a really good suit. And I thought that the actor was very good. Um, Everyone was doing it very sincerely. Yeah, I mean, no, and what's really weird is that they had that exact tone of, like, on the one hand, soap opera camp, but on the other hand, well, yeah, but it's a serious movie. And I think, you know, probably towards the end of shooting and, and you know, with the good feeling and everything, they may have even considered the possibility that there would be a sequel. If that had been a direct-to-video smash, and then they had gone, oh, yeah, we'll make a sequel, I'd have been, in, I'd have been there for it. You might even have got a cinema release. I'd love to see an actual film about this because I think it's a fascinating story on how the movie industry is made, and also it's kind of there's a lot of I have a lot of empathy for those actors that genuinely believe they're in this thing, and to have just to not to exist in the public eye, you know, essentially for certainly by the or, or or certainly that's what that's what they the studios wanted. This not to exist. It would have been terribly disheartening for anyone who's given, you know, their all. I, was, I think it, it's a story that needs to be told more. You know, I think it's fantastic. It was particularly sad because what's really nice for a comic book fan watching this movie is Johnny Storm is 1960s Johnny Storm. Yeah, annoying as hell. And he goes, oh, golly, gosh, whiz, gee, and all this kind of stuff. And that's the spirit of it. And, yeah. it, you know, it's a bit of a throwback but not in a bad way. And it's like something that's really weird because we're used to now, particularly now we're used to, they pay homage to the, the, the Silver Age while at the same time acknowledging they need to make a AAA cinema blockbuster. But this film has a delightful, unself-conscious kind of, yeah, we're being what we're being, and that's it. You know, it's a bit of fun. It's a bit of well, schlock. Let us, let us for a moment, Leo, just you and I, perhaps, uh, cast a glance over the balance of the films we have this year. Tell me, Leo, is this a good year to be doing a kind of a, a film studies media course? Right. This is what I'd say to that. If, you, if, like us, you were to be sent back in time, maybe in a sort of way like that guy in the butterfly effect, if we could read this list of films and it goes all wobbly and our consciousness from now could be sent back to 1994, I would say it's a fascinating year. But coming hot off the presses, I mean, really, you, with, you, don't, you can't have hindsight at the time and there's nothing to really pick out. What they're trying to tell you to go and see is possibly not what you you're going to want to see. Let's let's take a I mean, you know, we saw things that year. I remember in our quick what's in the 90s thing you said we went to see Disclosure yes. together. God, that was an awful film. <laughs> let's mean, not it's... even let's not even talk about that again, but I'm just noting that it's there. But we definitely with college we organized a visit to go and see Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Um and I remember me and the lecturer having polar opposite opinions about that movie at the time. The lecturer thought it was jolly good fun, and I thought it was appalling. Yes, you said it was a cautionary tale about why men shouldn't have sewing machines. <laughs> it, it's famous, well, not famous for, uh, John Cleese is in it, but he deliberately tries not to look like John Cleese because he's yes. become obsessed with the fact that people look at John Cleese and start laughing. Uh, so yeah. to be serious, he had a he had a mouth guard that changed his uh, changed his face. Uh, and, 
Yes. Which is hilarious. And of course... Uh, and he did a silly walk. And uh, yeah. and of anyway. course, he is also the brain of the monster, if you if you follow the sort of where all the parts yes. come from. And so we have Robert De Niro as as Frankenstein's monster. Unforgettable. Uh, a lot of death, I call that. And like, like the book, it just kind of... Well, it just kind of stops, doesn't it? Well, I watched it again because... Thor, like I thought, Thor was jolly good fun, and at the time they're saying, "Well, you know, there's a kind of campy melodrama that Kenneth Branagh does really well." And Mary Shelley's Frankenstein told us this years ago, but it wasn't appreciated at the time. So I went, "Okay, maybe I was wrong." And I rewatched it, and it's not as bad as I thought it was. Certainly, I wouldn't say nothing could be because I didn't think it was that bad at the time. I just thought it was a bit rubbish. You know, but it's actually not a bit rubbish. I think the problem that I had with it again is the fact that they put Mary Shelley on the front of Frankenstein. So, yeah, it's part of the Be- trend. Yeah, because it's it's not Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Uh, it's it, it's it's 90s extreme. They're going to do the most definitive version of Frankenstein ever. That's so authentic to the books, apart from a few places where we divert completely divert, like bringing because, back Helen Bond Carter as, as as a Frankenstein monster herself. Well, and then, but then, and then there's also the fact that they kind of took a, a modern view. I don't think that that Mary Shelley was really all that concerned about uh, Victor Frankenstein's possible incestuous. Yeah, you pick it out, but she lived in a world where cousins married cousins, or you know, whatever, all that kind of thing, all in the family. I mean, she was posh. Posh people still do this, so it, that was not. She was like, yeah, and that happened because that's what it was. But Branagh took it as a symbol of, or he really wanted to push, well, this guy makes, sews together cadavers and brings them to life because he's in love with his sister. And you're like, no, I think this guy sews together cadavers and brings them to life because that's what the story is. And and trying to do this sort of psychodrama about why he does it. And that's where it falls down. If you just kind of accept that he's a bit weird, then cool. I mean, that's the way they always did it in the 30s. He's a bit weird. Get over it. Mad scientist, uh, as they say. Yeah. Um, also, and I th- uh, the other trying f- to be very Freudian about it doesn't work. Yeah. Sorry, carry on. The other films we went out and saw as a group this year, I'm pretty sure we went, we trooped off to see The Lion King together. Um, I didn't go to that, if you did, because I, never, I saw The Lion King on video when my sister was born and was of the age to like The Lion King. And, of course, for us living at the time, of course, Pulp Fiction was the grand text that came out that influenced everything. I mean, I think you and me were like, non-linear storytelling, we know this. We read books, we understand the concept. I don't understand why other people are always so head-blown by the concept of non-linear storytelling. I mean, we've, we've, we've beaten Quentin Tarantino to death. So just taking pop fiction as a film which has popped up on the television, what is our opinions on it now? It's, it's like Quentin Tarantino's greatest hits. And that's unfortunate because, to date, it's Quentin Tarantino's greatest hits. It's a strong movie. When people are externally focused... Uh, I get the imp- well. Quentin Tarantino is clearly externally focused due to the fact that everything he does in minute detail is a homage to something that he saw. He's got no actual original ideas. This is what we've discovered. That even the things that look original are actually he's just got this encyclopedic knowledge of crap TV and movie of the sixties and seventies. 
and foreign cinema of you know later times so he just puts that together it's like a jigsaw puzzle over and over again and his new combinations produce something tarantino plus he does have original ideas for little snippets of dialogue and stuff which is fine that's good and if he played on that that would be great but he, he doesn't but pulp fiction really is where he had something to prove as well i think once he'd proven that point it's just the jigsaw puzzle over and over again and i think what what keeps other people fresher is that they don't they're not trying to prove anything to anyone outside of themselves they're trying to prove something to themselves and that's what's important and i don't think quentin tarantino is trying to prove anything to himself justin or indeed uh, anyone I, else i i really enjoyed pulp fiction i have to say i it, it was kind of smart uh interesting characters um i've always liked that kind of narrative storytelling i was kind of used to watch a lot of foreign films where this kind of vendors and stuff like that where it delves into that kind of non-linear stuff so i like that i like that format i just thought it was very slick as well and certainly probably one of my favorite tarantino films if not the favorite i think just everything came together i think he'd made a name for himself he made the impact with uh with reservoir dogs but this was something else i think it just had a lot of class to it really i think and especially the names involved in it as well and it famously brought back to revolta of course from you know wherever he was at the time and uh so yeah i i I, you know i think it's i haven't seen it recently so whether it how it stand up to the test of time i have no idea but this this is one of the things that i i have to give it is that at the time when it was out and then it subsequently came out on video i must have watched it umpty billion times mm. until i was thoroughly sick of the whole thing and then a few years later it was on television around christmas time and i was like i'm not watching that i've seen it too it's a good film but i've seen it too many times and i just happened to be walking past the television that had it on at one point and it, so it was a random moment from in the middle of the movie and i stopped and for a minute i was like yeah, that looks pretty good. Like, I couldn't hear it, and that's an important thing. Like, you, because sometimes you get kind of distracted by all the patter, that when you actually look at it just happening, you're like, yeah, that's actually pretty well made. Yeah, okay, fair enough. And I didn't watch the whole thing, but it's that. And the funny thing about it is that's not the feeling you get later on. The feeling you get later on is it, he almost immediately after this starts phoning it in. And that's the problem. I mean, it's like there must be a real chunk of something in there that isn't in subsequent works because, you know, nothing else sticks. It's not memorable, but Pulp Fiction is. The, well, shall we... Um, oh, we shall, can move on. We can yeah. move on, of course, to a, 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 a variation on that theme. Natural Born Killers. Now I know we went to the cinema to see that. I didn't together. go. I never. I have never seen Natural Born Killers. You oh, saw so it. I definitely. You saw it and you reported back to me about it, and I never went to say it on your recommendation. And I always feel gratified. Oh yes, by yes. It. It, it, right. I would. I would actually pretty much like to sit down and watch it again out of curiosity. But at the time, it, obviously, you'll take take on, take your motion sickness pills when you do. Yes, because it did give me a blinding headache. I think at the time, you know, having absorbed Reservoir Dogs and True Romance and Pulp Fiction, I was expecting something out of the dialogue. And obviously, Oliver Stone rewrote the script, kept scraps and snippets, and the rhythm of uh, Tarantino's script was gone. 
So I got this kind of multiplicity of film stocks and like just this insane MTV-esque experience. I mean, weirdly, I'm imagining it looks more like something that we would see today now because we do this stuff all the time now. But at the time, it was just way too overdone. Just Natural Born Killers, Justin? Yeah, I, it, the thing is, I wasn't really... I mean, as much as I like Reservoir Dogs and Pulp Fiction, it did kind of start changing cinema. Everyone was trying to do these kind of films. And they're not really... I, it's not really my cup of tea, to be well, honest. What's really, interesting, what's really interesting is that Oliver Stone was most assuredly not trying to, to well, ape Tarantino. He took a Tarantino... Unlike Tony Scott who just went, yeah, let's give Tarantino's true romance script, you know, I'll make one change, which Tarantino was largely fine with uh, on record, and just roll it out, see how it goes. Oliver Stone went, well, I like the idea of the script because I want to make Oliver Stone makes a film about serial killers. But, um, yeah, none of this nonsense. And then he gutted it and turned it into something himself. And it happened to get caught up in that. I think neither Tarantino nor Stone are happy that Natural Born Killers got whipped up into that part. Oliver Stone, because he doesn't really see what the fact that he optioned the Tarantino script has to do with anything that Oliver Stone has to do. And Tarantino, because Oliver Stone, you know, essentially spat in his face. And especially bearing in mind the fact that before it came out, Tarantino was like, I met Oliver Stone. We we played the... Plat- this is one of the things that Tarantino does, which I think is kind of charming. When he meets people, he plays board games with them, and he bought... And they're really weird board games as well. He and Oliver Stone played the platoon board game together. Right. Once. And, uh, and, then, and then I think what it was was that when Oliver Stone... It was like they were like, oh well, you took a Tarantino script, but you didn't go with it. You did your own thing. Oliver Stone kind of got a bit irritated that people even cared who wrote the script, and that's where the the sort of blood feud that probably lasts to this day uh, was born. Because you know, well, there it was. Oh well. Yeah, so I, I I didn't find it enjoyable. Basically, essentially, I it was not really my cup of tea. Well, let's cheer ourselves up and let's put our put our foot to the to the pedal and accelerate into greater speeds and and talk about the the showdown between the men of muscles this year, uh, right. Stallone with the specialist and Arnie with True Lies. Ah, well, of course, True Lies. Yes, True uh, an adaptation lies. of a French movie. Yeah, I, I I was actually really impressed with True Lies. I I, I didn't. I must admit, I, I, mean, I think I've seen the specialist, but. The True Lies had a lot of stuff that worked for me. It mean, it was kind of like at this time because it's got James Bond elements to it. At this time, Bond was kind of dead. Was disappearing really. It was dead. It was pretty dead, wasn't it? Because Brosnan still hadn't come back yet. No, I mean, no. he hadn't. Bond hadn't come back in the form of Brosnan yet. So there was wasn't any Bond. And you know, this was actually um, a good stabber doing a kind of an American Bond, really. But 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 also more than that, though, it kind of had. Kind of, it was kind of sophisticated. I was, I, I was, I was quite surprised. You know, I've seen plenty of Arnie films, and actually, this one I thought, I mean, uh, uh, it was intelligent, it was fun, light, you know, and it had lots of, and also lots of great. I mean, big action scenes and stuff, very memorable action scenes. I don't think many people will forget the kind of Arnie turning up in the, you know, rising above the, the uh, in, in the kind of. Harry or whatever he's got the. Uh, it was another James Cameron mega budget film. It was the most Absolutely. expensive film of its day in the year. 
I liked the tone of it, you know? It was kind of fun and light. It had Jamie Curtis in it to kind of soften just so it wasn't this macho action guy. I, I have to say, I really enjoyed it. And it was I certainly saw it a few times in the 90s. What's really weird is that after The Last Action Hero, I was like, oh, I'm so over that guy. So I never yeah. went to see it at the cinema. I caught it later. I was like, yeah, that's pretty decent. I mean, if we're talking about uh, Specialist uh, for a second, just to kind of go in there, um, I'm, I'm surprised to note in the cast list that James Woods. I don't believe I've ever bothered to watch The Specialist. I mean, The Specialist, to me, exemplifies the kinds of things that Sharon Stone did after Basic Instinct. It was like, oh, dear. Here we are again. Um, I can remember stuff blowing up, but that's about it, really. <laughs> One would hope so. Oh, you know, I just um, remember a booby-trapped house and Sharon Stone. I have to what? say, uh, uh, Sharon Stone is not really, I mean, probably in the later years, but certainly early on, I always found her quite a bland actress. Yes. Uh, um, and just like, even though she's strikingly beautiful, but in a way kind of not, because she's like, perfect and there's something weird about her that just kind of i don't register it she's like not she's got she's like flawless but there's nothing there interesting about her at all no i think that i think that what the problem is is that sharon stone is more fascinating than the characters she plays (laughs) sharon stone herself is is that's i mean and then just picks these roles which are i mean yeah it's often been noted that, you know, there are certain actors who pick good roles all the time. And then there are other actors who kind of just, you like the actor, but God, you can't stand to watch anything they choose to do with their, you know, their time. They go, oh, yeah, this will be a good project. And you go, really? This is what you're doing with your your prodigious talent? I don't, yeah. Um, I mean, I can't think of an example off the top of my head, although I can, actually, because there's one underneath. Uh, Ewan McGregor, for example, I don't really like, generally speaking, films that Ewan McGregor chooses to be in. Mm. But I like Ewan McGregor fine. I've got nothing against Ewan McGregor. He's very likable. What is a a really good Ewan McGregor film? Train Spotting? Does anyone like Train Spotting? Well, they will come to Train Spotting. But this this year was shallow grave. I quite like The Island, but you know that would come. Yeah. Oh God, yes. That was a film nobody else liked, but yes, that'll that come down. It was Bay, wasn't it? Am I mistaken? Yes, it was Michael Bay. Ugh. Michael anyway, Bay. In, a few films that I like. Michael yeah. Bay in shock, interesting film. I mean, it's not. Well, the thing is, Michael Bay comes at two levels. You see, one level is the Bay that we're all talking about now. We'll call him Pearl Harbor Bay, and then there's, I suppose, what you'd probably call as the Rock Bay, Michael Bay, where. You forget that sometimes he he got it right or he did something interesting. The problem is whenever he does something right or in, at least interesting or fascinating or, uh, you know, brings an opinion out of people. Like I went to see Pain and Gain last year and I quite liked it. I thought it was it was a perfect way to tell a story about meatheads who thought that they could get ahead by profanely murdering people everywhere. I thought it was pretty good. Lots of people hated it with a passion, but at least they had an opinion. Whereas Transformers: Dark of the Moon, uh, who cares? Oh who well, cares about that. Back, back, back to '94, and, yes. and perhaps picking up speed once again uh, is Speed. Keanu Reeves in a global yeah, action film. One. That's a very interesting movie uh, in retrospect because at the time it was massive. Yeah, it was. And 
subsequently, it's not a bad movie. It's an all right movie. It's got Keanu Reeves. It's got Sandra Bullock still in the ascendancy. It's got Dennis Hopper not being a dinosaur. <laughs> and and Jan de Bont, you know, made his name after being a sort of DP. This was the one where it's like, oh, he's an action director. Really, has he made uh, Die Hard 2 as well? Was that him? Oh, no, he was a DP for the guy who made, I think. I say he was a DP anyway, and and this was his first film. And for 10 minutes, he was he was big. And then he, he started to make terrible things, as we shall see later on. <laughs> but, yeah, I think the thing that most... Speed was the first time in a cinema where I kind of... And it happened plenty of times after this, but it got to the end of the action movie, and I went, right, there we go, there's the end. And then it went on for another 25 minutes. And you oh, no, come on, seriously? Everyone else with me on that? Oddly, speed not quick enough. Justin? <laughs> yeah, I think you might be right. I mean, I, 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 it was okay. I watched it because, obviously, it was just a big thing. But a bit gimmicky, you know. But it's fine and reasonable, you know, of, of its type. I didn't have a huge problem with it. Will, will I watch it again? No. <laughs> You know, it's kind of there and done. Oh, I do. I do enjoy it. I I really. I mean, you know, I mean, it's one of the few films in which Keanu Reeves does not play the one in some sense. There is there is nothing special about Keanu Reeves. But this was the year of Little Buddha, wasn't it? I'm not sure. It was this year. So, I, I don't know. <laughs> so, but, I went uh, to see that yeah. with one of our lecturers outside of college time. My goodness. All oh, right. Well, possibly it was then. But uh, may I? Uh, we'll be very brief. I just want to quickly moan about Star Trek Generations. And I'm oh, not, go ahead. I'm not going to, no, I'm not going to belinger this one. Okay, you're going to make Star Trek Generations. We decide that the TV sets aren't up to film standards, so we'll just sort of mood light them for this film, and then we'll just destroy <laughs> the Enterprise. complaining about the light. Yeah, and then we'll destroy the Enterprise D so we can get up with a new ship for the rest of the film series. We're also going to bring back William Shatner as Captain Kirk, and this time, ladies and gentlemen, we're going to kill him. So uh, yeah. here we are. We have we have a film in which the Enterprise D gets gets trashed and Kirk dies, and this has all the potential. That's to be, no. Yeah, Nazi. this has all the potential to be quite awesome, really. When you look at the elements that are here, and you just look at what they actually made, it's like you have failed totally. You have you sidelined Shatner for most of the movie. The Next Generation story was a fairly average story, even as far as Next Generation goes. It just feels like an extended TV episode with slightly better special effects from time to time. And it, it is it is the truism that the odd-numbered Star Trek films are bad. Here we are. The first ten minutes are quite good when Kirk appears to die in the past. And if they left oh, yeah. it there, it would have been fine. Uh, but I just, I just look at this mess. I mean, we had Malcolm McDowell. I think... With Star Trek, they're trying to make villains which are interesting. And I suppose his character has an interesting motivation that he's villainy is all about him just trying to get back to this Nirvana place he wants to live in. And that's fair enough. He's not just evil for the sake of being evil. But at the same time, it's like he's such an unworthy opponent to you know, drop Captain Kirk off on a bridge off the side. Yeah, bridge on the captain, you know, down the side of a cliff. And then Kirk dies. Yeah, I, I, I was distinctly <coughs> quite annoyed by that, actually, I have to say. I thought that character... Of all of all the ways to go out, you know, it's not the most dignified. Of it reminded me a bit of Tom Baker's death in, in um, Doctor Who. It was like, surely, surely he could have gone out on a big bang rather than just fall off a bridge. It just felt like, is this really where where? Yeah. It, George, a shocking thing. That was the retake. First, the first version they shot, he just got shot in the back by Malcolm McDowell. 
And I mean, if you are going to kill Captain Kirk, and people argued, oh, well, he's not dead because he's in this weird place, and he's, yeah, well, you know. But if you are actually going to kill him on screen, then you want him driving the Enterprise into the bad guy's planet and obliterating it. You know, yes. he needs to go out on a massive high, of which then there's a, you know, you kind of, your emotions well, and then you have, you know, and it's, and then you, you're kind of mixed with the conflict of like, oh, we did a really heroic thing, but now, oh my God, we've lost this character. But you don't get any of that if someone falls off a bridge. I think, <laughs> um, I think one of the things that boggles most people's minds is how difficult is it to do, oh my God, the sun's going to go supernova unless someone pilots this shuttle into it with all the stuff onto it, but then they'll die. I'll do it. How difficult is that? It's not any, It's not difficult at all, you know? So, I mean, I just did that. I made that up off the top yes. of my head. Yes. Uh, it's, it's, it's just it's, the thought that, you know... Basic failures. And also, just the icing on the cake, you know, Enterprise D destroyed, uh, Captain Kirk dead. Oh, yes, Picard's entire family die in a fire and what do what do we gain for enjoy for enjoying this movie nothing it's ah at least when when in star trek 2 when when spock died kirk gained a son you know there was a balance about it all but anyway whatever (laughs) yeah i think maybe we should return to our foreign directors because uh i'm I'm noting here we have um stargate Mm. And Leon, the professional, yeah. or Leon as it's known just over here, or the professional. as it, Yes, it's called Leon the professional in the list because over here and in France it was called Leon and in America it was just called the professional. Where, uh, you know, who knows? Well, it's wacky. Um, but, uh, yeah, so these are two breakouts. You know, we've got Luke Besson and um, the guy who made Stargate, later made Independence Day, whose name escapes me for the minute. We saw Stargate together. I quite enjoyed it at the time. That's all I'm going to say. I remember being really irritated by by, uh, Stargate. Roland Demerick. Sorry. Because I just thought... Now, it's since grown a lot in my affection. I think mainly because of the TV series, because it added a lot more to it. But I remember watching it at the time, thinking of getting annoyed just because of its derivativeness it was just so uh, many things blatantly ripping off stuff that i loved they made a big hoopla out of when well, one they said that the point is that i think what saved me from this and maybe you missed all this media commentary was yes we know it's derivative but and this was the point they set their budget against the budgets at the you know with the adjustment for inflation of other things that it had ripped off and it was cheap This was a cheap movie. And what was making the producers, the studio's eyes pop, and what was they tried to put this into the marketing as much as possible was, yes, it's very derivative, but all of the stuff that happens and all of the things we achieve, we've achieved at like a tenth of the cost that it's ever cost us to do this previously. They were trying to say this is like a a post in the ground of how the future is going to be. Yeah. In terms of we'll be able to make cheaper things with better effects, which of course has come to pass. But what we also learn is that, you know, you do need, and this is something that I think the Stargate does achieve, you do need, you know, characters that people care about and some kind of notion of decent direction and some kind of, you know, you need all more elements than just being able to do loads of cool visuals. 
to make a movie that people are going to stick with. Oh, but we, we, um, we, all, we walked out of that going, you know, next movie, please, because they've set it up so beautifully with it, with their intergalactic telephone. Which takes this, is something, this is something that I've become very used to, is this feeling that, you know, I would definitely with the Amazing Spider-Man reboot, you walk out going, okay, that was fine, get on with it. And that's the point. I mean, I think there is a problem where you've got a movie which only exists to service other properties. Now, Stargate managed to, you know, it kick-started, it incited a television yeah, revolution. It's actually a really, it's a really good idea. And, and, and it actually is executed very well. Uh, and I've since uh, learned to forgive all the kind of stuff. Uh, I, it, but at the time, it kind of, that, because I, I thought the idea, I got really excited with that. I was like, oh, this is such a great idea. I love Egypt. I love all this. This is great. Um, and then I just kind of, oh, I've seen this before, I've seen this before. But actually, I I have kind of grown to admire it more. And you're right, it did, it did you know, the, the the idea was strong enough, obviously, to carry a lot a lot of uh, a lot of TV shows uh, on its back. So, so yeah, you know, I think it's I think it's an important film for that. Yeah, I mean, I think it's a big beginning to Stargate SG One uh, and Atlantis. It's it's just fantastic, you know, like. You get to the end of all that, and then you start to get at the beginning, and you could go around watching that for the rest of your life. It, it, it just, yeah. It, 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 so, as part of that body of work, uh, it's one of the few things where it survives turning into a television show. And it, you know, if you compare it with the Buffy the Vampire Slayer film prequel to Buffy the Vampire, it's not really, but kind of it does chronologically fall that way. Nobody would start off a Buffy marathon by watching the Christie Swanson one, or maybe completists would, but nobody would see it as a worthy thing to do first, you know, from a quality point of view. Whereas if you're going to start a Stargate marathon, SG-1, with Stargate the movie, woohoo, bring it on. Bring the popcorn. So I think that's that's jolly good. Speaking of Um, fine beginnings, Natalie Portman, Leon. Yes. um, Well, yeah, I mean, the thing about it is, at the time, I'd seen Nikita... And I wasn't really that bothered about Luke Besson, which seems ironic in retrospect, seeing as he's now one of my favourite people who've ever worked in film. I think the problem is that until... It's weird to have someone blossom into doing completely ridiculous action B-pictures. Like, so, you know, his thing, his thing is that. And this is before he's got to that, where he's still trying to be a bit classy. And if he'd... I think if he'd made Leon today, he'd have gone... Uh, I don't know, maybe we should do this, maybe we should do that. But, you know, maybe we should make it more accented on this. Or, but, it, yeah, it's a classic Luc Besson movie, uh, although not one of my favourites, despite having Jean Reno and Gary Oldman in it. And I didn't watch it at the time, uh, especially being in mind the fact that because of the way that people talked about film prior to the internet, by the time I heard about it, Chinese whispers had turned it into, well, you know, like that character in, in the Nikita the stroke of the assassin who you know cleans up after she makes a mess this is a film about that guy and i'm like mm, i'm not sure i really want to watch a film but and although that's kind of the pitch that's not really what it's about no. so uh well, it's fine it's a fine movie uh great i mean you know i'm very glad it exists because it, it is a stepping stone upon the road to you know the transporter and lockout <laughs> and all my favourites. Absolutely, that was yeah. good. I, I enjoyed it at the time. B movie picture type action movies that I will watch over and over again. So yeah. 
And uh, uh, we, we think we're hurtling towards the end now, I fear, but I'll quickly well, say Highlander 3, uh, shallow as hell, scenes functional, characters zero, moving on. Well, I was just going to say, you know, we've got some, you know, there are the years turkeys, as is so often the case in the 90s. What have we got? We've got uh, the next Karate Kid. Yeah. We've got uh, Street Fighter. We've got The Shadow, Terminal yeah, Velocity, was... Wolf. Death Wish you know, 5. Got... Hmm? What's Death, that? Death Wish 5. Mm, I don't think that counts as a turkey being as, I guess, it's what it's supposed to be. I mean, the, the turkeys are the ones where they've gone... Hey, come and watch this. I mean, there are others that I can mention. Blown Away, of course. That was supposed to be a big action, you know, full of action virtuosity. And featured Tommy Lee Jones doing the world's worst Irish accent and denoting his Irishness by listening to you 2 in every scene. Yeah. I thought Irish like, did yeah, that. Yeah, I'm Irish. That means I only have the Joshua Tree and I listen to all of it all the time. Uh, oh, Beverly Hills Cop 3, of course. You kind of briefly mentioned that earlier. That was a turkey. Oh, I uh, saw that one. So, yeah, I spent Macaulay in it without the animated thing, Page Master. That was pretty bad. Oh, I never thought I was going to ask if anyone... Actually... It's, like one of those, it's good concepts, but just really poorly executed. Uh, which is a shame, because I noted that when I was looking at the list, uh, directed by Joe Johnston, who I actually quite like as a as a director, but, uh, yeah, and it's got Christopher Lloyd in it, so, you know. Not enough to save it, unfortunately. It's, no, it's... I could I could guess not. Was so, Clarence yeah. Danger a flop at all? I mean, it's got Grumpy Harrison Ford in it. This, again. No, we already did Grumpy Harrison Ford. I mean, just a moment, because we missed in the comic book section. It's, really, it's not really a comic book, it's a radio serial and a pulp thing, but The Shadow... Well, The was... Shadow is absolutely my, you know, the people know me, you know, this is the, my cup of tea. Uh, is it a great film? No, not really. I mean, it's great to, you know, it's brave to see this genre on screen because it's not a genre that is generally really understood by Hollywood, uh, or even they know it's a thing, but, but, um, so, you know, it, listen, if you want pulp superheroes, then you don't have much options. You have this and you have, uh, the, uh, what's it called? The Phantom. Uh, you know, and that's but it. You could also argue that you have Dark Man and the Rocketeer as well. Uh, well, as as um, well, yes. I mean, Rocketeer is probably the closest. Darkman certainly has a sp- the spirituality of and the feeling of it evokes that definitely. But in terms of classic, you know, uh, where it's set, Rocketman is cl- uh, Rocketeer is closer. But but this is absolutely pure. You know, it's just it's not a very good film, unfortunately. <laughs> it's well, I, I I tried to watch it once on uh, TCM. I, I, after about forty minutes, I was like. I don't actually know. I thought I knew what was happening at the beginning, but now I've lost it. And that's, you know, it's not often that I don't just do generally can't follow something, but I'm like, either it's really stupid or it's too complicated, but I don't know which. Uh, on which we come to Street Fighter, which I think we can comfortably agree is just stupid. Yeah. Yes, but is, 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 is it enjoyable stupid? Is it get your mates around, drink some pizza? No, it's made it even more... The thing that's made it even more difficult to uh, watch than it was even to begin with is the fact that you know, in retrospect, Raul Julia was having a bad time. And the story goes that you see Raul Julia's performance and that everyone on set would see him put the performance in and be like, wow. Because the minute it stopped recording, he would hunch over and sit in a chair and just be exhausted. Like, he was... This is what's so sad. He's giving it all to his performance as Bison. 
and he really is like it killed him to play Bison, and this is his legacy. This is the last thing. This is the thing that he put all of his effort into was Street Fighter the movie. Yeah, I'm thinking he was he was putting all of his effort into possibly b- buy another series of houses and set up his family. You know, he didn't really. Oh yeah, no, I mean, the money is and everything. But the point is, he could have taken the money and put in a performance like, yeah. hey, anyone else who was in the movie. But yeah. he didn't. Well, he was you know, like, hey, what? Well, I I want to do some acting. I'm going to do some acting. Yeah, and he and he did, and. That actually makes it quite uncomfortable to watch because you know you're watching someone burning themselves out playing a wooden, crappily written despo in a stupid set of I I have to say I've never sat through more than probably half an hour um, (laughs) when it was on TV once, and that's about as much as I could stomach. It's really pretty appalling. Um, I mean, apart from anything else, I think one of the major problems that it has, and probably the reason this Street Fighter, ironically, uh, gave a boost to Mortal Kombat, because Mortal Kombat has actual fighting in it. Street Fighter has very little in the way of, I don't know, fighting, and much (laughs) of the fighting that happens doesn't happen on the street. So, you know. But uh, on, uh, on the subject of surprise to find someone acting... Uh, interview with a vampire this year as well. As oh gosh, we oh, yes, okay. didn't even. Uh, yeah. yeah, ironically, in this household, we prefer Queen of the Damned. Well, yeah. rock music for you, isn't it? Yeah, uh, I was never a big thing. Is I was culturally at this time there was a big the Anne Rice kind of vampire thing was going on, and certainly that had a huge impact in role playing and everything else. I was never, I've never been a vampire fan particularly. Certainly not that incarnation, the ultra core. Uh, you know, uh, Twilight kind of like Faye swanning around vampires, and I, although that's a disservice to this film yes. because that Twilight is truly hideous, hideous. But still, that is that is a, you know jumping on the bandwagon of these you know these kind the cool vampires essentially. Yeah, and I, mean, I, I think never had a, I've never been a fan of it. So I've, I, it, even though this film has a lot going for it, it's just not my thing. I just don't buy it. I think the problem is that the, the interview with the vampire movie coming in 1994 suffers from that 90s-itis that we've discussed before. It's like, yeah, we've like, yeah, we got Tom Cruise, we've got Brad Pitt, we've got Antonio yeah. Banderas, we've got Christian Slater, we've got, you know, um, Alan Thingy directing, a big director anyway. We've and got, some uh, actress I mean, called Kirsten Dunst. Yeah, well, she was six at the time, so we can't really play much on that. But then we've got um, Stephen Rare, the respected Irish actor in it. We've got all this big stuff. It was a big movie. It was a big 90s movie. And it could have benefited. I think I think this is why Queen of the Damned, although uh, not the world's best movie, uh, scores a points over it. Because Stuart Townsend is a bit more rock and roll. Well, that's the thing. It's a big surprise Tom about Cruise Tom Cruise. Wasn't... Tom Cruise was a controversial casting choice, and the reaction at the time, I have to say, from the circle of people who went to see it was, well, he was surprisingly good as Lestat. Yeah, but the thing about it is, I think I think what what people had put their finger on. Yes, he could be as good as he wanted to be. I've got nothing. I, I mean, you know, now that now that uh, the, this creepy Katie Holmes uh, relationship is over, I have nothing against Tom Cruise. <laughs> You know, I could watch him before and I could watch him after that relationship. During it was all a bit, this is a bit off. Um, but yeah, um, now that he's just a sad old man uh, making, you know, movies, 
and you know you have to face facts you know in oblivion he looked pretty damn good for a man of his age so you know i don't really feel that sorry for him being you know on his own and a little bit nuts and apparently he's a really nice chap but the problem is his entire tom cruise-ness plays against the character that he would have to portray in interview with the vampire and that it remains true, no matter how long that film exists. Stuart Townsend is dirty, gritty uh, as a character, as an actor. You know, if you know when Gary Oldman... Pl- I mean, it's almost like the wrong way around. Tom Cruise could have played Dracula in Bram Stoker's Dracula, and that would have been the star turn that everybody was expecting from such an overblown thing. If Gary Oldman had played Lestat, again, you've got that slight sort of rock and roll and Tom Cruise for the I'm sorry he has no rock and roll give him more proof of it go and watch that film with the rocks oh rock of ages yeah I don't know I would I would not condemn anyone to that fate Um, (laughs) so yeah well but I just say for for me and for the people that I knew it it was it was our favorite vampire film of the decade not necessarily up against particularly stiff competition. No, I don't think... I, so I what, think what was it up against? Buffy? Uh, <laughs> Bram Stoker's well, Dracula? My favourite... Um, we uh, haven't okay. got to this, and it's not necessarily in my top five, but my favourite vampire movie of the 1990s would have to be Blade. Yeah. I'm with oh, yeah, that's Blade. true. Yeah. yeah. I, but for I'm vampire, there. vampire, vampire movie, Blade is, you know... Let's go kill some vampire movie. Oh, God, yeah, but what... I mean, well, then, yeah, I spoke... Yeah, but... Whichever way you slice it, oh, being vampire. vampire. Well, the thing about... Well, no, I was going to say, if you say within that decade, the Lost Boys wins, and, you know, like as in within a decade of it either side. Oh, right. And if you say within the decade that it came out, the 90s, Blade wins. You know, it's still that... that, I mean, the vampire nation in that is is quite seriously done. Uh, I mean, apart from that, what competition is there? I mean, what? What's... I'm just saying, uh, people I knew thought, "Whoa, that was better than we expected," and surprisingly, we might go watch that again. But you know, I'm not really? saying it's like the definitive Anne Rice adaptation. Well, I'm not sure that any of these things are, and I'm certainly not sure I would watch it again. But uh, uh, I'm going to pipe in and say I like Interview with a Vampire. I really do, and I like Queen of the Damned. I would still take Blade over any of them, and I would still take Lost Boys over any of them. So there we Blade go. is anyway, great fun, though. It's a completely different... It's almost a different genre. Vampires all has in common. But there was one last film I felt we should pop our heads past, which would be Heavenly yes. Creatures. Oh, well, yeah. Well, this is interesting, because uh, although I note that it is a... It is a strange note in the career of Peter Jackson at this time. It is not one thing that he does nor another it is something else entirely it didn't really you know i thought it was interesting i mean he did all this kind of crazy effects work for it which he obviously loves to do but it was a kind of a true story drama type thing and he's never really done anything exactly like that ever again uh but apart from that notable thing about it what 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 did you wish to what stuck in your mind then ian why do well, you... i think we came out of it um, um is, you know, we, we saw it together, and, and, and I'm more noting it now because this man goes on to do other things we are going to talk about probably at length. But when we get to them, uh, and I think this this film kind of shows that he can do fantasy, I suppose, and also um, has a much younger what's her name in it, Kate Winslet. But it's showing that the filmmaker is maturing because he's got over his wow, I just want to have people eating brains phase, <laughs> you know, and reveling in that, which is all you know, we love all that stuff. 
Um, but here is he's like actually making a. I'm going to. I want to actually be a credible filmmaker now. And he's taking it seriously, you know. And I think he he picks up with themes in this in the Lovely Bones as well. So I mean, he clearly has. Oh God, I forgot he made yeah. that. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. clearly, you know, he, I think he loves film really, and he and he and he's quite happy. He, he's quite capable of turning to other things other than just these massive, you know, uh, uh, blockbuster kind of films. So yeah, you know, he's explore he's exploring that, and I think it's important. It's certainly a very important film for him. Um, because it brought a lot of respect that, you know, he certainly wouldn't have got from a, most of the audience, you know, certainly what I, in quotes, serious film, film goers uh, and critics. Whereas this would have brought him something to show this guy actually is, he's is a, the... a name to be, you should keep an eye out on this guy. You know, he's just someone who can make films, serious, credible films. The necessary stepping stone between, you know, eating brain films and, and doing an adaptation of Lord of the Rings. For the rest of his uh, career, well, we, have, we have to frighten those people that as well. But you know, yeah. he's he's. Uh, but this is yeah. It's, it's, well, if we are going to pick up on a couple of little little things that are, now this is a film that I I just want to mention, but I, I can't really say anything about it because it's another one of these disappeared movies. And No Escape with Ray Liotta, which is a, a great bonkers sci-fi B picture where they have, like, an island in the future with Mad Max-style prisoners on it. And Ray Liotta, of course, is the man who didn't really do it, who gets dropped into the middle of this uh, morass of psychopaths. And then action ensues in which he survives and tries to escape uh, to to put bring to justice the men who abandoned him in this prison thing. And it's all jolly good fun. But jolly good fun, you're probably not going to be seeing because I doubt that you could probably get hold of it anywhere anymore. I think I've watched it with you, Leo, because otherwise, otherwise I wouldn't have known what this film was. But we can't have watched it with me, because I've never had a copy. Oh, OK. Oh, maybe I've, maybe I've seen it then. It sounds very familiar. Well, it sounds very familiar, because it's about a sort of futuristic prison colony. I mean, they've made many films yeah, of this I kind. Know, I don't know. I might have seen this, you know, late night one time then. I, I mean, think actually what's weird is it's one of these things that now I come to recount its setup would... Uh, possibly make a, a you know a great television series rather than a, a film a one-off film it would be a cheap sci-fi series to make um and you could certainly spin some drama out of it you know and it would be an island series which would be less disappointing or have potential to be far less disappointing than say lost so that's 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 they found a hatch in one series oh. <laughs> don't get me started on lost i'm like a wind-up toy when it comes to that show Anyway, um, well, I, I, should we give you the lead in, Leo, or should I just jump into the Facebook page? Uh, if if you're uh, stunned and disgusted that uh, we haven't, in fact, gone into a big retrospective of literary and uh, cinematic merits of uh, Wolf, directed by Mike Nichols and starring Jack Nicholson, where might they go to complain about our uh, our passing over of this uh, forgotten classic? Well, one place you could go to talk about the fact that we didn't have a huge rant on uh, Disclosure this time round, where the uh, stakes at hand are the fact that Michael Douglas might get transferred to the Austin office and lose his stock options. You could go to our Facebook page, which you can find on Facebook forward slash Revenge of the 80s Kids, and that's 80s as in numbers, it's 80s. Please go there and like our page. It is our community hub. We put up links to our podcast there, as well as links we find interesting. But 
podcasts are what it's all about. And for that, you want to point your web browser towards 80s Kids, and that's 80s as in lettuce, so E-I-G-H-T-I-E-S, kids.podomatic.com. Please go there and subscribe to our podcast using the podcast aggregator of your choice or download direct to your PC for dark reasons of your own. But this is only where our most recent podcasts can be found. For the legacy of our podcasts, you need to go okay. to... Go to leostableford.com, uh, where you can find a full archive of all the shows that you can't find on our 80s Kids page. And uh, you can also find stuff there that I'm doing otherwise, although at the moment I'm writing a lot of code, and I haven't put that up online because, well, it's kind of work, really. Uh, so that's it's a bit quiet at the moment. But, uh, Justin, uh, have you been up to much recently? And if you have, where might people find that? Uh, well, I haven't put a lot of new stuff on, on, online where you can find... You can find certainly previous examples of my work on my DeviantArt page under my full name, Justin Wyatt. Um, but I'm I'm suffering with the same problem, being rather busy with work, and so can't put too much of my own stuff up. Well, there we have it. 1994, the year of the clerks. But sadly, we're not going to discuss that film. Thank well, God. I think, I think to, you, thank God? Why thank God? Oh, it's been talked about too much. I'm a bit over Kevin. I guess, yes, days. I guess clerks is, is something that has been covered uh, ad nauseum elsewhere. Besides, if we, if we are going to discuss a Kevin Smith movie, then the Kevin Smith movie we're probably going to have to have a discussion about is coming up in a few years' time, and it begins with a D and rhymes with smogma. <laughs> <laughs> and we didn't even mention airheads, which I rather enjoyed. Yeah, it was, it's, again, it's that thing of, well, that's not really our remit. But yes, airheads, Brendan Fraser, Steve Buscemi, and Adam Sandler, who, if they walked into a bar, would certainly be in a joke together <laughs> uh, very strange uh, but yes and I, and I would good and let you have a conversation about Pulp Fiction without thank you wife yeah. yes <laughs> so I think probably uh, the way forward uh, apart from obviously we're, we're lining up 1995 coming soon but uh, we promised to do a little bit of a sort of retrospective look into uh, certain uh, people so I'm thinking that maybe the shows that come up would probably uh, revolve around something like that so we're probably going to go and have a, a think about that and uh, look out for some more uh, 80s kids nostalgia coming your way soon. But for now, bye-bye. Farewell. See you later.